0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: I'm Zach Beecham, a senior correspondent at Vox who writes about democracy around the world with a special focus on Israel. I'm sitting in for Sean Elling. It has been about a month since Hamas's brutal assault on Southern Israel in which the terrorist group opened fire on a music festival and went door to door slaughtering Israeli families. Since then, Israel's been at war launching a ground incursion into Gaza and dropping bombs in densely populated areas, including refugee camps, that have at times wiped out entire families. Around the world, members of affected groups, including Muslims and Jews here in America, have been victims of a wave of hate crimes that seem inspired by the violence in the Holy Land. The situation is monstrous, almost too horrible to process. How can we even begin to think through such a tragedy? I'm Zach Beecham, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Shadi Hamid, a columnist at the Washington Post who has written extensively about Islamist groups like Hamas. I wanted to talk to Shadi in part because we have complementary expertise, but also because we're friends who have known each other for years. I'm Jewish and he's Muslim. And I wanted to capture not just the situation on the ground, but to have a conversation about how this is affecting our communities and what it might mean for the future. Shadi, welcome to the program. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here. And I, I want to start, especially given your expertise, by going back to the beginning of the conflict. Like, you've, you've studied Islamist groups quite a lot. And one thing that hasn't been obvious to a lot of people is why Hamas would do such a horrible thing to begin with, right? Like, what are they thinking when they send people in knowing that it's going to incite a massive Israeli response? What's your, what's your read on that sort of foundational question in this conflict?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question and a tough one. Hamas is a number of things. It is a terrorist organization in the sense that it obviously targets innocent civilians, as we saw in the October 7th attacks. And part of what terrorists try to do is to provoke a reaction, an overreaction. They want to push the opponent to do something they otherwise wouldn't do. And that leads to overreach miscalculation. We saw this post-9-11 with Al-Qaeda and how the US did a lot of things it probably shouldn't have done, yeah. certainly in uh, certainly in hindsight. So I think that there's definitely this dynamic of dragging Israel into something that it can't really it can't really sustain or withstand. And in, in a sense, we can already see how Hamas is winning the information war to some degree, at least if you look at popular sentiment throughout the global South, throughout the Middle East. But I think that we have to look at the lead up to October 7th and what was happening in Gaza and what was happening in the Palestinian territories more broadly. There was simply no movement. Nothing was happening. Desperation was growing. And I think part of what Hamas has been trying to do is to make a bid for revolutionary legitimacy. My colleague at Wisdom of Crowds, Demir Murushik, wrote a really good piece about this, where he made the point that spectacular acts of violence and brutality are not a new thing. They are actually quite common in revolutionary contexts, and it's a way for Hamas to seize the initiative to demonstrate its own relevance and, you know, part of understanding terrorism is or understanding the resort to violence is to understand what makes individuals more or less likely to consider violence and terrorism as an option. And this is like a, an echo of the post 9-11 debate. And you know, oddly enough, I think the Bush administration was quite smart about this, even though it didn't really act on it that well. But the freedom agenda was in part a realization that if you want to fight terrorism, you have to give people legitimate means through the political process to express their grievances. If they don't have those legitimate means, they're more likely to resort to violence, extremism, terrorism, and so forth. So I think understanding that broader context of how Gaza had just been frozen in place, and a real sense of hopelessness was spreading, and support for militancy was growing. And that's certainly a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you alluded to the post-9-11 debates, and and one of the important parts about that conversation that we need to capture is that there's a distinction between explanation on the one hand and justification on the other. It's extremely obvious to me that there can be no moral justification— for what Hamas did. And the people who are trying to justify it, we've we've seen a sort of fringe of them on college campuses in the United States and certain radical pro-Palestinian protests. It sort of makes my skin crawl, right? Imagining people trying to defend what was done to Israeli civilians, especially when you learn more and more about the details. But what you're doing is not saying, this is right because of these conditions. It's saying, under these conditions, There's a sort of strategic logic that's at work here that would lead Hamas to act like this. And you don't have to morally condone it to understand why someone in the position of the Hamas leadership would green light such a horrific massacre.
2: Exactly. And I think it's a really important distinction. It's always challenging to talk about these things after an atrocity and after what Hamas did, which I think most reasonable people, I think, would agree was was horrific that there is a risk when you try to understand the broader context of a conflict and what led us to the point we're in. People can take those explanations and say, oh, you're excusing it or you're justifying it. And I remember this post 9-11 where it was the same thing. And we keep on doing this after acts of terrorism where there's a group of people who don't want us to talk about context. They don't want us to understand the sources of evil. And actually, my latest Washington Post column was precisely about this, and the title, I think, uh, bothered some people. was something like um, reducing Hamas's terrorism to a problem of evil is a mistake. What they did was evil, horrific, and so forth. But when we keep on dwelling on evil as the explanatory uh, framework, I think it narrows our ability to really take terrorism seriously as something that can be combated and something that has to be thought about in a very careful, strategic way. Because if we say they're evil and leave it at that, then we're basically saying, well, People are evil, they do the things they do, and the only option then is to just kill them, done, period. And I think that that's probably not something that most people should be comfortable with. So at some point you have to be able to speak with nuance about what the best way to contend with a terrorist act is. And I think it's hard for a lot of people because they see evil, understandably, And then there's going to be blind fury. There's going to be a desire for vengeance and retribution. And, you know, I wouldn't expect any Israeli inside of Israel to be particularly open to what I'm saying, because vengeance is a natural human instinct after something as terrible as October 7th.
1: It's important to think about this through the Israeli perspective, right? Because that's informing what the Israeli policy response has been that we've seen. From their point of view— It's not just that Hamas is evil, which I think they're right to say, and it's not just that they feel a need to respond. It's that they feel this profound and deep existential insecurity, right? For Israelis, the purpose of their state is to protect Jews from what has happened to us For all of human history, I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much, right? Since at least the Roman Empire became Christian, and and modern anti-Semitism took its its currently existing form, and the idea was that if you build a strong enough state, no one can do that to Jews anymore, and and it failed, right? Israel failed in its most fundamental task. The way that I've seen and heard from Israelis, this reshaping the way they think about the world, are just we need to destroy Hamas. And they don't—they don't really have a sense of what that means, and I, I can tell you from my own reporting, the government doesn't have a sense of what that means either, right? So there's this this response of really. Uh, I mean, it's hard to describe it other than indiscriminate bombing, right of what's been happening in Gaza so far, right? It's not fully indiscriminate. like it's it's not a genocidal campaign, but it's they've paid very little attention to civilian casualties. and and you've you've heard from some sources, there's a New York Times piece where they say basically explicitly, this is how the Israelis are thinking about this. And to explain that again is also not to justify it. Right? To me, it seems that there are elements of the current Israeli policy that are completely indefensible. But they come from this place of feeling menaced by a group that committed these acts of evil and that won't cease to exist and and is is basically the sovereign of Gaza right next to them, just mere kilometers away, with some of its spokespeople vowing to do this again. So this has put Israelis in this position where they feel a need to, to fight in a way that I think is not well understood for people who are outside Israel.
2: Yeah, I think that's really well put. Again, I don't think it's quite the same thing, but if we look at nine eleven, we as Americans did have this sense of security. We're not used to people attacking us on our own territory. We're used to fighting well away from our own shores. So I think that if you have a sense of complacency, of just being protected from all the evils of the world, that you know, you have your kind of island of safety then it does really come as a shock. And I remember last time I was in Israel in 2019, there was a real sense of complacency as it relates to the Palestinian conflict. It was like, well, we have this sorted. People were very strict about our security. And, um, you know, we built a wall, you know, uh, we're we're building this very high-tech fence, although that happened a little bit later um, on the Gaza border. Like all these security provisions were being taken seriously. And there was a sense that you could sort of just cordon yourself off from the desperation of Palestinians and leave it at that and say, well, we have a successful Israeli state. We have a thriving tech industry. We're a vibrant democracy. And you know what? We don't have to be part of a two-state solution because we're managing it. And I think what we've learned is that you can manage the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a certain period of time, but you can't do it forever. Like as an Arab and as a Muslim myself, a big part of what I try to do in my work and my research is try to understand people who I have profound disagreements with. And most of Israeli public is well to the right of anywhere that I'd be close to when we think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I remember in the 2019 trip, I was shocked. I was like, wait, is everyone a right winger? Even people who are ostensibly centrist or left of center, they have ideas that they would express in private while I'm in the room. And I'm like, oh boy, this is some scary shit that's going on. Um, Just in terms of just very demeaning comments about Palestinians, about Arabs, about just really seeing you know Palestinians as enemies to be destroyed but at the same time i have to understand i have to make a conscious effort to understand how israeli public opinion over time has moved in this quite right wing direction there are reasons again it's something that i find very um unsettling and you know it hurts me that this is actually what israeli public opinion is but you know at some point we do have to understand and I think that when I look at a lot of fellow Arab Americans who are like mobilizing and who are very much on the activist scene calling for a ceasefire, I do think there is an unwillingness and an inability to really contend with what Israelis are thinking and saying and doing. And maybe it's not their job because they're activists and they have a proximate goal of trying to bring about a ceasefire. So of course they're not thinking about Israelis, But I think we as analysts, we as people who are trying to think constructively about this, I think we do have to, at some level, suspend maybe our personal biases or sympathies a little bit and try to understand how Israelis could have opinions about indiscriminate Mm -hmm. bombing. The fact that there doesn't seem to be much opposition among Israelis to what you said, which is a bombing campaign in Gaza that seems largely indifferent to mass civilian casualties. That doesn't mean it's genocidal. I don't think that word is appropriate. And I, I do worry about on quote unquote, my side, this kind of hyperbolic language about Israel that makes Israel into something uniquely malevolent. I think Israel is like pretty normal, but normal isn't necessarily good. Just because other countries would do what Israel is doing now and like try to, you know, obliterate Gaza, I mean, that is often how states react to terrorism, and it's not good. But there isn't something uniquely malevolent here, too. And I think that it is, it is good to have a sense of pr- proportion and to not get carried away and use language like genocide. I just don't think it meets the current and conventional definitions of genocide as we know it.
1: There was something you said about needing to understand the rightward drift of Israel that, that really stuck with me, right? Because I grew up a kid in the 1990s when Israel was hitting the um, the apogee of its political liberalism, right? The peace process looked like it was about to succeed. It looked like there'd be a two-state solution. The Israeli Supreme Court had begun ruling in a way that was shifting the country in a more secular direction, right? Israel really, when when I was a kid, matched the way that American Jews We thought about ourselves for the most part. So generally a very progressive, secular, left kind of group of people, uh, despite being very attached to our Jewish identity. And the last two decades of Israeli politics has seen a sort of shattering of that conception of Israel, and it's it's created this massive open wound, internal rift in the American Jewish community between people who recognize the reality. And people who don't. And then inside those divisions, people who recognize the reality of what's changed and like it versus people who recognize the reality of of what's changed and don't. And and finding myself in that second camp, right? I look at at what's happening in Gaza, and it's being done partly in my name, right? And I just think I I truly cannot believe – I mean, I can. I know. I've been to Israel many times. I write about it professionally. I know why this is happening. As you say, it's a normal country, but one in – extremely abnormal circumstances. But but it sort of raises the question, right, okay, I, get, I can understand where this response is coming from, but the question you get from Israelis is what else should I do, right? Like what are the other ways to think about this problem? And you and I have both written about this a bit. It, it seems to me that there's a way to conduct a military offensive that's more proportionate, more focused on the Hamas leadership, more focused on um, rescuing hostages and bringing the direct perpetrators of October 7th to justice. Like, that's possible. It's just not the route that this government is choosing to go down.
2: Any government in response to a terror attack like October 7th isn't going to be particularly dovish. Like, everything that you're saying, which I would wish for more proportion and just more care in terms of how to target and who to target. And we often hear this language that, you know, Israel doesn't deliberately target innocent civilians. Um, Sure, but I think that that's cold comfort for Palestinians because if your family members are being killed, you don't necessarily care a whole lot about whether Israel did it intentionally or not. I mean, the result is the same. It's also kind of off-putting to sort of hear IDF spokespeople keep on repeating these mantras. Fine, you're not like going out of your way to kill as many Palestinians as possible, but you also don't seem to care all that much when there's considerable collateral damage and even that that phrase is it's an ugly phrase but i think there's also the fact that israel is a democracy so it's accountable to its own people and israeli public is not in a dovish mood so i think that is a real constraint on what israeli policymakers are going to consider so even in talking about eliminating hamas we hear a lot of this language but what does that really mean in practice? Like I said earlier, if Hamas is a mass movement, if it does have deep roots in Gazan society, and I'm not gonna be one of those people who pretends and says, well, oh, Hamas is completely separate and you know, there's Palestinians and there's Hamas. Well, they're not the same, obviously, they're not equivalent, but Hamas does have roots in society. So that makes it much more challenging than, say, Al-Qaeda post-9-11 or ISIS, which was really in, in many ways a foreign intrusion to some degree on the lands that it controlled in Iraq and Syria. So this is different. We're talking about a Palestinian faction that has been part of the Palestinian political scene for a long time. So you can't just go and what does it mean to eliminate? Um, and I think a more practical goal would be to end Hamas's rule in Gaza. That's actually something that you can measure. You can also talk about what a ceasefire might allow. Let's say a humanitarian pause or you know, a temporary ceasefire, without getting into details of how long that would last and what the conditions are, is there some kind of mediation process where Hamas can release hostages in exchange for, a halt to the ground incursion into into Gaza or a halt to the the bombing campaign, what would that look like and what would happen the day after? I think there's, there's a lot that can be said about that. I mean, is it possible for Hamas to agree to offload its governing responsibilities to the Palestinian Authority as part of a negotiated deal with other Palestinian factions? What would it look like to hold elections, um, let's say, Next year, if there's a reconstruction period in Gaza and the international community is trying to actually make Gazan territory viable again for people to live in, what does it mean to hold elections? Will Hamas members be able to participate? Is there a way to say, well, if Hamas members wanna participate, they have to agree to some kind of disarming or demobilization? These are the very tricky questions that I think have to be asked Because you can't really design a bombing campaign without knowing what your end goals are. And if your end goals are unclear, and as you said in your own reporting, it's not clear that the Israelis really have a clear sense of what they want to accomplish. Well, that's a problem. And the means of war have to be aligned with the ends of a war. And I just don't think we have that right now.
1: So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to pick up on something Shadi was just talking about, which is what does a post-war Gaza look like and what does it mean for the Middle East?
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline.
1: And we're back. We are talking about the current ongoing horrible war in Gaza and what it means for Israelis, Palestinians, and and now the future of the Middle East, right, is a topic that that Shadi, my guest, just brought up. So, I want to get into that, right, because you were talking about what a post-war Gaza might look like. And it's hard to even – begin speculating, right? Because we don't know how far Israel is going to go exactly. But one conversation that I do know is happening at very high levels is about there being some kind of international presence in Gaza, primarily – Sponsored by regional powers, right? As some conglomeration of Arab states. I don't know which one's exactly. I don't think anyone knows which one's exactly. Um, this this strikes me, on, honestly, as fanciful. The idea that there that any Arab government would be willing to send its own troops in to clean up after Israel seems just totally out of whack with public sentiment in the Middle East right now. But I guess, I mean, this is something you've studied extensively, right? Like, how how do you see this war? changing what was the status quo politically in the region, not just in Israel and Palestine, before it started?
2: Well, I mean, before the war started, the Palestinian question was sidelined. I mean, that was really the whole premise behind the Trump-brokered Abraham Accords. And it is remarkable to think that basically as it's main policy initiative in the middle east the biden administration a democratic administration basically took trump's signature quote-unquote achievement and doubled down on it i mean that itself needs quite a bit of analysis and assessment but i think that the abraham accords were designed to do a runaround around around palestinians it was a way of making the israeli-palestinian conflict into an Arab-Israeli conflict that could then be resolved through a series of bilateral uh, peace accords where the Palestinians just simply weren't involved. And obviously, I just think that's untenable. And I, I was an opponent of the Abraham Accords from the very start. It wasn't a popular position. Another reason I opposed them was because it was about doing deals with brutal dictatorships. And I don't think true peace can be possible if you don't have buy-in from the population. I mean, no one asked Emiratis or Bahrainis what they thought, and that simply wouldn't have been possible because that's not what they do in those Arab autocracies. So it was the Abraham Accords-oriented policy was also one of basically outsourcing U.S. policy in the Middle East to friendly autocrats, which is a long story in American policy running for decades where we suppress popular sentiment and we think we can do business with these leaders who are not particularly legitimate. So I think that that actually complicates a lot of the discussion about what a post-war Gaza could look like, because if we're talking about Arab regional powers stepping in, they just don't have the legitimacy to do what people want them to do. They're very concerned about their own regime security because they know very well that their growing rapprochement with Israel is not something that is shared by the population to any significant degree. So it puts them in a very, you know, delicate position.
1: This is a little controversial, but it strikes me that the Biden team has been pretty good at crisis management in general. They have done a I think an excellent job in Ukraine. And their response to this. To the situation has been – I mean, look, they were in a lose-lose situation in a lot of ways. They didn't have a lot of good options given the the nature of the conflict, right, and what both sides wanted to do. The incursion that we've seen at least so far has been comparatively limited. And I think that's partially because Biden – I mean, he literally went to Israel while they were preparing what looked like and what we heard from reporting at the time was an immediate ground invasion. And then it got held off and it got held off and it got held off and it appeared a lot smaller than it would look, right? And a lot of that, uh, from what I've heard, is because of behind the scenes pressure from the Americans saying, What is your end game? What is your end game? What is your end game? Like, what do you want to accomplish? What's your vision for the post war? How do you avoid getting yourself stuck into a long term occupation in Gaza? The same kind of post 9 11 questions that I wish our country had asked itself before we invaded Iraq. And, and that played a material role in constraining Israeli behavior. I mean, I don't know if that's enough to say that they did a on-net amazing job, but I certainly think that they played a bad hand of cards reasonably well.
2: I saw a tweet of yours where you I think you said something to this effect, and I was surprised because I saw everyone else criticizing <laughs> I remember that, yeah. the Biden administration from any number of angles. And here is Zach being a lonely voice in the wilderness saying, actually, you know what? the Biden team has done an actually okay job under the circumstances. And, you know, we have our disagreements, but I always feel like you try to call it like it is. So I respect your opinion. And I was like, hmm, if Zach says so, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh on the Biden administration. So I guess it depends what our expectations are. If you already have low expectations, I suppose that the Biden team has met certain quite low expectations. You know, it could have been worse, I suppose. And also, I feel like there's like two modes of shatty. I just speak about myself in the third person. But there's there's like calm, dispassionate, analytical me. And then there is the me that is affected emotionally by what's going on. Yeah like what I've seen among Arab American friends and on Arab American and, and Muslim group chats is a level of despair that I have not seen, I don't know, not, I, maybe not even since nine eleven. Yeah, you know, just a sense that the Biden administration has really been terrible. I think part of it is because of the optics. People look at public statements, they look at high profile press conferences, and I think we just gotta be straight up what Biden said in that one press conference was horrible. And I honestly- are, are you
1: referring I, to the the Palestinian death toll where he questioned the death toll? Yeah. yeah,
2: basically casting doubt on Palestinians dying. Like in this moment of peril, when so many Arab and Palestinian Americans have friends or family in Gaza, and then John Kirby's press comments where basically war sucks, people die, like- that's maybe honest or whatever, but I mean, I would have preferred to see a little bit more hypocrisy. Just pretend because when John Kirby talked about Israeli civilians dying, rightfully so, there was a real sense of empathy. These were human beings. These were individuals who lost their lives, but then to say, to treat Palestinians as numbers and to question the death counts. And we're talking about a lot of people killed. So I think that A lot of Arab Americans have seen that. And it seems like why can't Palestinians be talked about as human beings deserving of dignity? Why do American officials see Palestinians as just an abstraction or as something that's only relevant insofar as it's tied to Israel? Like, it's really frustrating. And I think there is a real discrepancy between elite Democrats and officials and where the heart of the Democratic Party is moving, especially young Democrats. And there's been a couple of polls that have come out that show that in the 18 to 34 age range, there's much more support for Palestinians, understanding of Palestinian grievances, support for ceasefire and so on. And it just feels like the Democratic leadership is just in a different place in the way they talk about these issues. But maybe if I did tell my Arab American friends, well, look, it could have been worse. There's no doubt that Biden is trying to constrain Israel at least to some degree. Now, even with those constraints, Israel is killing a lot of Palestinians. So then there's a question of like, well, at the end of the day, how much is this really making a difference if in the end, yeah I don't know like take that where you will I'm curious how you would respond to any of that cuz I'm struggling with how I discuss this with other people as well
1: this is exactly why I'm glad that I that I had you on to talk about this, because I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. While it may have been tactically in some ways smart for Biden to publicly hug the Israeli government, and that I mean, they've said this in, in interviews with journalists, right? That they publicly embrace the Israelis as a way of constraining them in private. Diplomacy isn't just about what you're trying to accomplish with a one government you're trying to influence. It's about how you reach millions of people around the world. Public diplomacy matters. And I, I you know, I wasn't thinking about that presser when i wrote the tweet that you referenced defending the policy i don't even know if it had happened at that point but it that, that was really a massive massive error especially since there's a lot of evidence that the the statistics from the gaza health ministry have been validated and so to talk about palestinian life in those terms i mean it's not only a failure of empathy it's a failure of policy because it's you're going out of your way to alienate millions and millions of muslims not just in the united states and not just progressives in the United States, but people around the world who see this and think, well, this confirms our worst impressions of a U.S. government that values Israeli life more than Palestinian life, more than Arab life. And that—that that is, I think, a disastrous perception for the U.S. government. So if you think of statements as policy in the way that you did, even if the sort of levers of policy that we traditionally associate with it, like using your leverage over a foreign government, have been well pulled, you're right. That component of the response— really is quite bad.
2: Yeah, and I don't know how to explain it. It's confusing to me. You know, even when you think about domestic policy, it's most Americans aren't following the ins and outs of the legislative agenda. They hear statements, they hear broad outlines of rhetoric, and that has a big effect. And so messaging does matter a lot, especially when you have these clips that go viral. And everyone was talking to me about that. I just was like, it was unavoidable in the circles that I'm in. And, you know, for understandable reasons, it was a very striking thing that Biden said. It seemed gratuitous. It seemed unnecessary. It didn't seem tied to anything else he was really trying to convey. So I don't know. I feel like I'm in a little bit of a difficult place because I do wonder about some of the deeper commitments that I've had for a long time and to what extent they're going to survive this conflict. I mean, uh, I'm supposed to be... (laughs) It's not that I'm supposed to be writing a new book. I am writing it, and I am close to finishing a first draft. The subtitle was actually supposed to be The Case for American Dominance, and that made sense to me, like, a year ago. Um, I don't know if I can write a book that conveys that same impression anymore. If this is what American dominance looks like,
1: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to pick up on this theme of what the war is doing to to people around the world and the effect that it's having and and the ways in which it it feels like a pivot point for a lot of people in their understanding uh, of politics. Welcome back. I'm Zach Beecham. I'm your guest host, and here with my guest, Shadi Hamid, and we are talking about the global implications of the ongoing fighting between Israelis and Palestinians uh, in Gaza. Um, Shadi, one thing you said in our last segment that um, really sticks with me is that in your, your chats with fellow Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, there's this sense of despair, right, of, of betrayal going on. Right And that cuts really deep. and you, you reference that poll and we can quibble with particular numbers. I think that the, the Zogby poll does have some issues, but it does capture like this, or at least it, it mirrors what seems to me from from everyone I talk to in the Arab American, Muslim American community that this is deeply felt, this hurt. Talk me through a little bit about what what the nature of, of that hurt is and how it's reshaping the way that Muslims and Arabs feel about their place in American politics.
2: Well, I think part of it, a lot of these young activists and also young staffers in government or on the Hill who are Arab or Muslim, there was a sense that we had entered into the mainstream of the imperial capital, so to speak, and that we had a seat at the table and that the Democratic Party and the Biden administration would be better on these issues because because of our own input, but also because of the progressive, I think, shift of the past 10 years or so, you know, with the rise of folks like Bernie Sanders, AOC, and so forth. So I think there's a sense of, well, everything we worked for, and now it feels like we're back to square one. And it's not just in terms of like policy or rhetoric from the Biden administration, but also I think the perception of rising anti-Muslim sentiment I think that's definitely true. I mean, I I think that, you know, I think it's just unmistakable. We can maybe quibble with how bad it is and then we get into like a, a competitive victimization thing or who's getting it worse and whatever, but certainly we feel it. And um, even the way the Muslim members of Congress are talked about, whatever you think about Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar and, you know, my politics aren't, like really theirs (laughs) to put it mildly. But I just think it's weird that there is an obsession with these two particular members of Congress and especially Rashida Tlaib, I think as the only Palestinian American member of Congress, it's just like, I don't know. Um, So I think that there is a sense that like we had become a part of the patchwork coalition of the democratic party that, you know, in the Obama years, Democrats would give the list of all the minority groups and we wouldn't be mentioned all that much. Something really changed with the election of Donald Trump, where one of the ways to signal your anti-Trump credentials was to be really pro-Muslim. So I think we did see a really profound shift 2016 onwards, which I thought was a little bit over the top sometimes, you know, uh, but still it was kind of, you know, it was nice to be recognized and appreciated and to be mentioned in the list of minorities and so forth. But I, you know, there is a tension here because, and again, I don't I don't want to use Arab and Muslim American interchangeably. I sometimes do that just because I'm both simultaneously. So when I think about my own identity, but anyway, they're not the same. But when I look at my own overlapping communities, I do see these growing tensions, especially among observant Muslims. And this is a different conversation that I'm sure we'll have to re-engage with like, I don't know, six months or a year from now but there had already been a shift for reasons I alluded to earlier on some of the quote unquote woke issues. I've seen a lot of folks who I'm aligned with on other issues say that the events of October 7th, you know, Hamas's massacre and and how some on the left responded to it, pushed them to the right. And I think it is worth mentioning, I am kind of annoyed by certain folks in the progressive activist scene, I think there have been some huge tactical blunders in terms of messaging. Like, you know, it's just sort of like, don't say from the river to the sea. Like, you don't need to do a whole explainer on why river to the sea doesn't mean you don't want to erase Jews. Yes, it has a particular meaning and it doesn't mean the terrible things that a lot of people often assume, but you know what? one of the worst single day massacres of Jews in, in you know, since, well, the worst, since, um, since, you know, the Holocaust. Like, try to go the extra mile to just be a little bit careful with your own messaging. When you're at a protest, you know people are going to be filming your pro-Palestine protests. Don't let the message get muddied with dumb phrases that are going to just confuse people. So I get why some people feel like, so outraged by young progressives. And now they're like, oh, well, now we're shifting to the right because of this. And it's a hinge moment in our own political evolution. I sort of get that. And I acknowledge that even Rashida Tlaib, like you can do you can do a better job if people are asking you, I don't like this idea that Arabs or Muslims have to prove their loyalty by issuing condemnations of Hamas. It reminds me of 9-11, where we were always asked to, do you condemn Al-Qaeda? Do you condemn 9-11? And I'm just like, um, do we even have to ask this question? Yeah, it's, it's kind of Islamophobic to even expect that. Yeah, exactly. There is something really weird about that sort of way of, like, you know, positioning the question. But you know what? If the question keeps on coming up, and you can kind of, like, quiet people a little by— but just, like— So I think part of the problem is that the debate now is so zero sum. Yeah. So by even acknowledging the pain of the other side, some people feel like that concedes something of their own side, that there's only so much hurt and pain to go around and they have to keep all of it for their own group and anything else will be a sign of weakness. And that if you concede too much, It means you're not holding strong to the cause. And I see this on both sides. And I think it's really unfortunate that you – but this is part of like the way we debate tribally now in the U.S. where everything is this kind of you're either with us or against us sort of thing that if you try to understand your opponent, you worry that that's going to be taken the wrong way or you're – yeah.
1: Your point about – People shifting to the right – like people who are saying that are very loud, right? They're often people who have very big microphones and and probably honestly were already mostly on the right to begin with. But in the Jewish community, right, in the the majority of American Jews who are left of center, relatively secular but still strongly identified with Judaism, right, the the mainstream, the American Jewish mainstream – there's a kind of different response, right? And I think it's it's a little hard to grasp from outside the community, but it, it's also a sense of betrayal. And it stems from these not just sort of slogans like from the river to the sea, though that doesn't help, but especially the people who have taken either a pro-Hamas or anti-anti-Hamas position, right? Like what Hamas did was acceptable because it's quote-unquote decolonization or whatever – Or saying you shouldn't expect anyone to condemn Hamas. It's politically counterproductive to the cause of fighting the occupation. For a lot of American Jews, I mean, this has been a profound rupturing moment. A sense of betrayal not with the Biden administration, but with sort of the progressive movement that they thought they were aligned with writ large. I I can't tell you the number of private messages I've gotten from other Jews saying it just feels like our lives don't count. That among people that I thought were my friends, like if I had been at that rave – in the desert, or if I'd been one of these kibbutzniks visiting a family member, uh, right, who by the way were a disproportionately pro-peace community in southern Israel, right? If I'd been visiting them and I had been murdered, people who I had been in class with, in college, at my workplace would have been justifying my murder. And that that sense of alienation and betrayal, I don't think it's it's fueling a shift to the right exactly, but it is fueling a sense of alienation and political homelessness. Um, or I don't think from the Democratic Party in general, but from the progressive movement specifically. And I, I don't know what to do with that because a lot of these people that I'm talking to also you know, have pretty, for Jew, by Jewish standards, left-wing positions on the Israel-Palestine conflict. They're really upset with the way that Israel is treating Palestinians and are trying not to indulge in this zero-sum thinking that you rightly point out is horrific and counterproductive to the way that we think about these things. But they're trying to hold that sympathy and empathy with Palestinians in the heart at the same time that they still, they feel deeply victimized by their fellow Americans and threatened, right, the the rise of anti-Semitism around the world in the wake of this conflict. It's, I mean, this happens every time there's a war with Israel, but this is, uh, God, It's it's a totally different degree, right? There's this, this headline I saw from a a, a, a quote from a German Jew and in, in a German newspaper that was something like, Now I know what it means to be a Jew. Right? European Jews didn't talk about things like that beforehand and the way it's it's affecting the community. I've I've much like you've never seen this sense of, of despair and betrayal, I've never seen this sense of fear. Maybe not since the Tree of Life massacre, but here it's different. Right. And I I I don't know what to do with it.
2: I'm glad you bring that up because how do I put this? Um, well, progressives are basically disappointing generally a lot of the time. So I think—and and tend to, like, alienate people with their way of—but um, I think you're getting at something deeper here. Because I think it's one thing if we're just talking about normal political debates, if we're actually talking about lives lost and terror attacks, it's just, like, at a different level. And I have to say, it is disappointing. Um some of the reactions I've seen on my own quote unquote side. Yeah. I do wish that, and I'm not just talking about Arab Americans or most, you know, but just progressive activists generally. And again, these are like overlapping concentric circles oftentimes. Like, you can do better. Like, how hard can it possibly be to just show that you're concerned about how, you know, your Jewish friends or colleagues or classmates? are dealing with what happened on October 7th. It just, it seems like a major own goal. It's obviously like a moral blind spot. And I think the moral question is an interesting one. How do people lose or feel that they can't really access moral empathy for people who they perceive to be? And you shouldn't even, like, we're not talking about, you know, Israelis, we're talking about people in your own campuses who you should be like more inclined to, to understand and so forth. And I don't know what to say, man.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I put you in an impossible position, right? I'm not asking you to, like, Like,
2: But I also, I feel like even I sometimes, like, in certain group chats, I want to, like, step in and and just be a voice of reason. Guys, like, okay, this is not, like, none of this is, like, anti-Semitic. This is, like, a different point. It's about how to, like, frame issues. Like, so when you're talking about a ceasefire— You can't just call for a ceasefire and not acknowledge that Israel has legitimate concerns about Hamas. Like, you can't just be like a ceasefire call that says nothing about Hamas. That seems like a major blind spot to me that gets at this bigger issue. You should be able to understand why many American Jews would not feel totally comfortable with a ceasefire call that doesn't contend directly with what Hamas did on October 7th. Like, I mean, it just like, try to like, I mean, I don't know what your sense has been, but I just, I, I'm trying to think about how I can better engage on these questions. I feel like a lot of activists are so focused on the activism now that if you bring up debates about messaging or alienating potential allies and so forth, like, I fear that they see that as a kind of undermining of what they're trying to do. And I'm not someone who's ever really been engaged in activist circles. So I watch it from afar. And I guess I just don't really even understand the mindset entirely. People who are just like not concerned with realistic solutions and are really very focused on Slogans, not every. I, I, again, like people will take that the wrong way, but I do think there is a lot of sloganeering that is really counterproductive. But it's not my world, so.
1: No, look, uh, activism isn't mine either. But I can say these sort of internal conversations on the Jewish left right now are really painful because a lot of people, especially on the like really anti-Zionist Jewish left, feel like they've been fighting against their own community for years now, and they're not really. A lot of them aren't really interested in criticism from inside the community because they're so used to being labeled self-hating Jews, anti-Semites, et cetera. They don't want to hear it. And I think that's a huge problem with the way that a lot of the the sort of centrist elements of the Jewish establishment have approached really trying to marginalize people who disagree with them on Israel and call them – I mean, God, there's one essay in Tablet magazine that called them un-Jews. Whoa. Yeah. And it's really quite bad. And I've – you know, I'm not – avowedly anti-Zionist myself. I'm a, a on-record supporter of the two-state solution, in part because I think Israel has a right to exist, and in part because I think it's the only viable solution, but at one point in the future, hypothetically. But setting that, setting that aside, I don't like the way that people in that position have been othered in our community, and that their really passionate concern for Palestinian well-being, which is totally on the right moral side of this, gets treated as a betrayal. But it also means that there's this internal dynamic that short circuits good conversation about this. Because some of those people are the exact people who have gone so far, right, in the doesn't matter what Hamas did. Maybe it's even decolonization, right, comparing it to John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which is like an absolutely insane
2: comparison. Wow, I didn't hear that one. That's 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 interesting. Um, huh. It's
1: like trying to tell to, – to be like, okay, let's come back to the realm of reality and and – Talk to our own community that's in so much pain. So many Jews know someone who's been involved in there that the just trying to harangue people as if saying, like, this is what you get for not ending the brutality of the occupation earlier— it's, you're not helping anybody. But setting aside our, our sort of two internal dynamics, one thing I, I guess I kind of want to close the conversation on is us talking, like, what, what can we do as members of our respective communities to try to ensure that this doesn't get locked into a zero-sum competition? You alluded to this earlier, right? The like – Oppression Olympics where we like, well, Muslims have it worse. Well, Jews have it worse after this attack. Or and, and also given that a lot of our sympathies, sort of gut instincts, are aligned to the different sides of this conflict. Like, what, what do we do to tell each other? Because Muslims and Jews in the U.S., I mean, we have a lot in common and historically have been relatively close political allies on a lot of issues that aren't related to Israel-Palestine. Right? Every year on MLK Day, I know my synagogue does um, – we do a, an event with – a black church and a mosque that's heavily, heavily black, and there's so much—not just like a once-a-year thing, right? There are actually deep interconnections between these, these communities and between these establishments where we talk to each other throughout the year. I, I just, I would hate, I would despair to see those ties that have been built up between these communities sundered by horrible events happening a continent away.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. And and it is really worth noting that before October 7th, for a long time now, I think there was a real sense that American Muslims and American Jews had much better relations than say Muslims and Jews in France yeah. or really anywhere in Europe, whereas, you know, much more tense. So, I think we had done like we had a lot to be proud of. And we were able, I think, to avoid the drag of, you know, foreign conflicts because ultimately, as close as we feel to the conflict in Israel-Palestine, many of us with various ties and connections, you know, we're we're still, I guess, most of us primarily American, and that's how we that's how we see ourselves. And I think, I think we reverted to a, a kind of identity politics that you know doesn't bode well for future muslim-jewish relations and we have to think about how to kind of address that or i look i wish i had an answer i think i could probably say something fluffy and innocuous like oh let's sponsor dialogues and talks and have exchange visits at mosques and synagogues like i guess like each and every one of us i mean everyone who's listening to this podcast does have a role to play i mean you all have agency, the listeners. And if this connects with you or resonates with you, you can do what you can in your own kind of small concentric circles of friends, family, community members, and just people that you kind of see every now and then. I remember that there used to be these things that people would do, like some Muslim group that had like a hug a Jew program, (laughs) 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 which I think is kind of like sort of silly. And I guess like, Patronizing, if if well meaning, yeah, yeah, and you know, you always, um, I I think that, I mean, Zach, what do you think? I'm struggling here. Help me out, man.
1: <laughs> I mean, this is this is this is gonna sound like the sappiest thing ever, but like conversations like this, yeah, right, <laughs> right, like not just sponsoring fluffy dialogues that are like you know people sitting in a room and talking about their feelings, but like honest, direct exchanges between people in these communities who have developed ties like you and I have over years. Right? like, And having these these openly airing what's going on in our communities, what we like and we don't like, and how important it is to maintain the connections that we, not just as individuals, but as communities have built up over the same years. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. It's It seems like that's what we need to be doing,
2: right? Like, yeah, and I would say the conversations, they should be raw and honest. Yeah. And I think it is really important to speak frankly with our friends about how we might feel betrayed or how we might feel let down. Like those sentiments are deeply felt on among American Muslims and American Jews. And let's not let's not walk around that or try to like cordon that off because it's too sensitive. I think it really is important. Like if people have these feelings and sentiments, they come from a real place and they have to be confronted head on. And I'm I'm very much a proponent, like I'm not a huge fan of interfaith dialogue and the stuff where you kind of preach to the converted and you kind of bring people who are ready like into dialogue to just dialogue with each other. No, you have to kind of go for the rough edges a little bit. People who wouldn't normally be in the room because they maybe have sharper views or more controversial or provocative views on the conflict. I'm not gonna necessarily advise, you know, okay, this, this will probably get me into some trouble and it did get me into some trouble when I went on the trip in 2019. But, you know, I have to say, um, this is not the time to like be planning trips or anything, but, um, you know, I, my trip, you know, the trip that I took to Israel as part of, it was part of a study group. We were focusing on religion and nationalism and naturally Israel's kind of a perfect place to study the intersection of the two. And it was like a pretty, like, it was, um, it was a Long proper trip, like something like, um, I don't know, like 10 days or something, but in, in Israel and the West Bank. And that's actually how the podcast that I co host, Wisdom of Crowds, got started. Because we were in a bus, and uh, Demir, my co host, Demir Marushik, and I um, we were on a bus in Israel and we were just like debating about religion and nationalism. And someone said, actually, it was Megan McArdle of the Washington Post who said, You guys should get a podcast. And we did. But being in Israel, it helped me understand like, why, why do people have certain demeaning views towards Palestinians? It's bad, but it's not enough to say something is bad. And I, I think that, you know, I even spend time talking to settlers. A lot of my fellow Arab Americans would say, Shadi, how could you possibly do that? Like that's beyond the pale. But really, I think, like, very few things should be beyond the pale. Then again, like, if someone's an open Hamas supporter, we can, like, cordon that person off. But generally, I think most people are within the bounds of discourse, and we should be actually confronting these issues head on to the best of our ability. I just, you know, there's no other way, I don't think.
1: No, no. I I remember, I I feel the same way. I remember going to a home of a Palestinian activist in the West Bank, and I told another Jewish reporter that I'd been there, and they were like, oh, you know, many Israelis would think of him as a terrorist. And I was like, I don't, I don't think so. That's not that was not my experience of him. And it's cutting foreclosing dialogue with somebody who comes from a radically different position. And not just wasn't my opinion of him, it was not how he acted or what he does, but it's like it shows how like you need to take risks inside the community to break down and to deal with and to understand where the other side's coming from. Um I think we're gonna leave it here, Shadi. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been just like a really, I think, I think a really valuable conversation. So thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks so much, Jack. Like this was really great. Thanks for reaching out. Really enjoyed it.
1: Rob Byers engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and Am Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at the gray area at Vox.com. and please share it with your friends on all of the different social platforms. Sean Ailing, also my friend, will be back next week. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Please help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give. That's vox.com slash give if you like this journalism and you want to support it.